Church, good morning. Hey, was anyone at our Friday uh, night men's oyster roast in here? Was it not awesome? We had four or 500 men in, in, in one room together hanging out for a few hours, and we had a fantastic speaker time together. I was uh, peer pressured by 400 of those men into trying my first oyster. It was disgusting. It was absolutely terrible. Um, I was telling people this morning that was the last one I'll ever eat. Nobody's going to force me to do it again. 24 years old. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was not good. But for all you oyster lovers, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure we'll do it again next year. Hey, my name is Bryce, and uh, I'm the pastoral intern here. I'm excited to be with you today. It's always a joy. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to share the Word of God with God's people. I want you to know up front that I'm here for one reason and one reason only, because I believe this word is completely true. I hope you do as well. And because this word is completely true, it leads me to believe that every time it's opened, every time it's talked about, every time that we receive it, transformation takes place. I believe that's why God desires we all be here in one accord today. We've been in this series that's called Moving Beyond Me. Over the last couple of weeks, we spent some time talking about how to not be selfish, if you're like me, that's your natural tendency, to be selfish. I was actually uh, reading a story this week that caught my attention about a private plane some years ago that were flying across the Atlantic Ocean. And on the plane, there were four passengers and a pilot. There was a doctor, there was a lawyer, there was a priest, and then there was a young child. And at some point during the flight, the pilot figured out that something was going majorly wrong on the plane. And so he radioed back to the people in the back of the plane, the passengers, came over the intercom, and he said, listen, guys, we are about to have to crash land. There should be some parachutes back there for you. I have mine. He jumped. They see him jump out the window. So then they start looking for their parachutes. They're, okay, we got to find these things. We got to find these things. They locate three parachutes, but there's only four of them. And so first the doctor speaks up. He says, well, I save lives for a living, so I have to live. And so he grabs one of them and jumps out of the plane. Next comes the lawyer. And the lawyer says, well, I'm the smartest guy in the world. I'm the smartest guy in the plane for sure. And so I've got to live and help people continuously on earth. And so he jumps out of the plane. And then it's down to the priest and the child. And the priest looks at the child with humility in his eyes. He says, child, you've got your whole life ahead of you. I want you to have this last parachute. The child is taken back for a moment. He says, Mr. Priest, that's, that's fantastic. But I want you to know that the um, smartest guy in the plane just jumped out with my book bag. And so we both have parachutes. It might take you a second. I am completely serious when I say this next comment. I read that this week, and I was scratching my head for three minutes as to why it was listed as funny, selfish story. I couldn't find the humor in it. But then when I got, oh, I got it. It was hilarious. So I'm happy you did as well. The reality with all of us as people is we have this tendency to naturally be selfish. I actually keep this mug in my office, I don't know if you can see it, but it says, it's all about me. Now, I do not keep that in there because I actually believe it's all about me. I keep it in there because a friend of mine who's on staff with us, Phil Reynolds, he gave it to me when I first started seminary a few years ago. He said, listen, when you start seminary, you're going to want to believe that it's all about you. You need to let other people know that it's all about you because you're going to have tons of work, tons of assignments, tons of homework, writing books to read, all these things. But I keep it in my office now as a deeper reminder about the seasons in my life where I truly did believe, based on my actions and my words, whether I wanted to admit it or not, that it was all about me. And so the question on the table for all of us today is, how do we move from me to we? 
How do we move from a mindset of me first to we first? If you've got a Bible with you, I want to direct you to our passage today. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians was written by a man named Paul. The Apostle Paul actually spent most of his time writing in the New Testament, talking about issues between people and other people. Now, I know we don't have any of those in our world anymore, but for the sake of today, I think we should read about it nonetheless. Colossians chapter 3 is an astounding work of literature in many different ways. We're going to read a few different verses, starting in verse 12. If you're able to, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 3, here's what Paul has to say. Since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. The word of God for the people of God. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that where your word is spoken and received, there's transformation. We believe that where the spirit is, which is right here, right now, both in person and online, there is freedom. So we pray for freedom this morning. We pray for eyes to be open, minds to be ones that comprehend. I pray that you give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The question on the table this morning is extremely simple in nature, but it's extremely difficult to actually live out. What moves us from me to we? And I'm not talking about a temporary movement for one or two days of selfless behavior. Instead, how do we move out of this mindset of naturally selfish to something way deeper? I think we have to start with the right Motive, the right motive. If you caught the motive in God's eyes, it's in verse 12. I want to direct you to it again. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must. Since God chose you and I to be the holy people that he loves, you must. And the writer goes on. So the first place I believe we have to start is actually not with us. It's with God. It's with his love for us. A question that I often ponder and I like to think about when I don't have anything else to do is this. Why would God, a perfect God, love us, imperfect people? Maybe you've pondered that as well. There's three reasons I was able to highlight even the last couple days. The first one is that we're all sinners. We probably prove that to one another every single day. Romans 3.23. We've all fallen short. How about this one? Um, our hearts are naturally deceitful above all else. Jeremiah 17, 9. Or maybe this one, our flesh is opposed to the spirit. Opposition arises daily. And so the question's still on the table. Why would God love people? The answer, I think, could be summed up in three words in 1 John 4, chapter 8. Maybe you've heard it before. God is love. God is love. Now that statement in and of itself leads me to believe that not only is love an action that God puts forth willingly towards his people, instead it's his makeup. It's his nature. And maybe, just maybe, 
You've heard this phrase before in a church setting like this. There's nothing you and I can do to gain God's love anymore, make him love us anymore, or make him love us any less. That's a very true statement. But the reason why it's true is because God is not one who just shows love. He is love. And when we come to a comprehension that God himself is love, things begin to shift in the way that we love others. Because I believe that God's love is meant to spur us on to action. If you catch what Paul says, he says, God chose to love you. And the repercussion of God choosing to love us is for us to love one another. We want to be bound together in perfect harmony, the Bible says, in perfect unity. We just sung about that just a few moments ago. But the starting place has to be our motive. And I wonder if God's desire for our motive is to be completely aligned with his motive. You see, God's motive to love is the fact that he is love. It's sometimes hard to wrap our mind around that. But we have to spend time thinking about our motives behind the why when it comes to our relationships with the who. I think there's another a movement, if you will, that we have to make. When moving from me to we, I think we have to make a move from duty to decision. I want you to hear me really clearly when I say this. The fact that the Bible tells you and I to love one another is a good enough reason on its own for us to love one another. But I wonder what happens inside of us when we choose to not only see loving one another as our duty, instead we make it our decision. We say, not only am I going to love a neighbor, love a coworker, love a family member, love someone in my community, not, not only am I going to do that because the Bible has told me to do it, because I've heard Jesus say it, because I've read Paul write it, I'm most importantly going to take it one step further and say I'm doing it because I've heard it, but I've also received it. I know what the love of God feels like. I know what it sounds like. I know what it looks like. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've felt it inside my very being. And therefore, the love that we are called to show to others is meant to be an overflow from the love that we ourselves have received. It starts with our motives. I was having a conversation with Pastor Chad. He's over preaching in contemporary right now. I was having a conversation with him doing some leadership development a few uh, months ago. And he said, Bryce, behind every decision that you and I make, there's usually a shadow side. There's a darker motive, if you will, as to why we're doing that thing. For instance, and he, he and I talked in, in terms of preaching. You know, for instance, Bryce, maybe the reason that you like to preach, initially at least, is because people tell you, great sermon, good job, and you build your ego up. That's one example of many that we all probably could name and claim in our own lives if we really stepped back and looked at it and addressed our motives. And so he asked me the simple question, what is your motive for doing what you are doing I believe that that one question, among many others we've already named today, can lead us to a point of moving from me to we. Because whether we like it or not, our motives affect our posture. Our motives affect our posture. We have to have the right posture as well. Paul says really clearly in chapter 3, after he goes on in, in verse 13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone. Forgive anyone. Who offends you? Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must in turn forgive others. 
For a long time in my life, I viewed forgiveness through a lens of a statement. I forgive you. But there wasn't much action attached. There wasn't a motive behind it of love. There wasn't a forgiveness type of posture. It was merely empty words. There's a man named Stephen in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of him. In Acts chapter 7, we read a little bit about Stephen on trial. You see, Stephen is on trial because he's been preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people around him do not like it. Some have received the message with joy. Others have wanted to silence him. And so in Acts chapter 7, we read about the story of how Stephen's life comes to a conclusion, at least here on earth. And I want to start reading for you in verse 54 because I believe that Stephen is a beautiful example of what forgiveness looks like in action. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed steadily into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, the writer of our Colossians passage, Paul, he was was there for this. He saw this. Before he even met Jesus personally, he saw modeled for him what forgiveness looked like. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here's the key, verse 60. He fell to his knees, and he shouted, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen's last words, other translations say it a little bit differently, and this might sound familiar if you've been around the the church for a while. Lord, forgive them for what they're doing. You see, I believe that Stephen a few years back from this point, had modeled for him on the cross what forgiveness not only sounded like, what it looked like. That when Jesus, in Luke's gospel account in chapter 23, verse 34, when Jesus was hanging on a cross just like this one, and his accusers were once again making accusations left and right, throwing things at him, insults, and physically throwing things at him, he was at the end of his life, he was breathing his very last breath, and out of all things, he could have said, instead of a comeback towards them, he said, Lord, forgive them for what they're doing. Radical. Humanly, it doesn't make sense. And for Stephen to be able to utter these words while rocks were flying at his head, knowing his life was coming to a conclusion in a very painful way physically, it had to be something more than his human ability to say them. And nonetheless, he sees modeled for him through Jesus Christ what true forgiveness looks like. And he decides to take that posture. I believe that if Stephen can take that posture, so can we. That maybe, just maybe, forgiveness is something we have viewed slightly through the wrong lens. Maybe we viewed it through a selfish lens. We've made statements like this. I know I'm guilty of this. I'll forgive him when he apologizes. I'll forgive her once she comes to me and apologizes first. I like to have a lot of phone calls, uh, Zoom calls, if you will, throughout the week with people that do ministry 
all over the world. I like to learn from a lot of different cultures. And I was speaking to a family in Canada recently, and they were telling me about a church that they started as a family four or five years ago. I was hearing about how they're doing now, but most importantly, I was caught up in one thing that they said when I asked them the question, where did all this start for you? Where did this burden start that you wanted to start this church in Canada? And they said, well, in 1984, our daughter was kidnapped in Winnipeg, and she was killed two days later. And after a period of grief, Bryce, we, we got to a point as a family where we said, you know, we, we can't explain the feeling that we have right now, but we just all feel the same urge, and that urge is we need to forgive whoever did it, both privately and publicly. Now, the craziest part of the story for me actually wasn't that statement. It was pretty crazy to hear that. And then they told me that it took 22 years to find the person who did it. 22 years. That's almost as long as I've been alive. And then once they did, they were in a courtroom setting. And publicly, they forgave him. They had a retrial afterwards. And currently, as I speak, he's a free man. And so I asked the follow-up question with almost tears in my eyes at this point. Did anything change for you when all that went down, when you saw him face to face? You forgave him publicly, though you've already forgiven him privately. And then, out of all things that could have happened, you see him walk away as a free man. And they said, no, Bryce, nothing changed. The reason was because we decided in advance what our decision was. And nothing at that point was going to change our decision. You see, they had decided in advance what posture to take regardless of what their circumstances looked like. Regardless of whether they were in front of the person who did this terrible act or not, they had chosen the posture they would take. And there's no amount of true forgiveness, I believe, that can be self-centered, that can be selfish. There's not much room for selfishness in true forgiveness. And I just wonder that if some of the difficulty we find in our world today in our communities today, maybe in our churches today, in our small groups today, even in our families today. I wonder if some of those difficulties and those difficult relationships could be all the way brought back to the root cause of forgiveness. And out of forgiveness, true love that reflects God's love for us. We have to address our motives. We have to spend time thinking about and choosing our posture. But then finally, I believe that what Paul invites us into when it comes to moving from me to we is choosing the right clothing. We have to choose the right clothing. There's a statement that he makes in Colossians 3, verse 14. He says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Earlier, he mentioned some other things that we can clothe ourselves with. In the book of Galatians, another letter that he writes, chapter 5, there's another list that he makes, actually two lists, starting in verse 19. In, in, in Galatians 5, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Galatians 5 is often known as the fruit of the Spirit passage. The things that the Holy Spirit produces out of our life when we allow him to. But there's a list that Paul makes starting in verse 19 right before that that we can't miss either. Here's what he says. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. 
And then he goes on a couple verses later. He says, but the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The question I believe that Paul would ask if he were here with us today based on the lists that he makes and the clothing language that he uses, is very simple. What do people see when they look at us? It's a very simple question in nature, but it's one that's worth addressing. When people look at you on a daily basis, what do they see? Do they see you wearing the same clothes in public as you do in private? If you're anything like me, you've struggled with that one. Because in public, you like to dress Nice from a spiritual standpoint. You make sure you pick out your finest clothes so that everyone can applaud the outfit that you're wearing. But then in private, you start to suffocate yourself with clothing that you're wearing. You start to choose clothing that won't actually fulfill you at the end of the day. And then day after day, we're back into that cycle. It's one of the most crucial moments in all of Scripture when Paul lists out for us, you can either choose this list to be a part of, these clothing choices to wear, or you can choose this list to be a part of. One way or another, something will be produced from our life. One way or another, when people look at us, and I mean every person looks at us, there will be some judgment made. One way or another, someone around us in our communities will want to learn something from us in terms of following Jesus Christ, the question is, what will they learn? What will they see? What clothing are we wearing? In Colossians 3, Paul conclusively ends this passage in a very, very, very profound way. You see, in uh, this past week, in preparation for this message, I was concerned a little bit. And the reason I was concerned was because when I was reading through this passage, I didn't quite know if it would truly give us the answer that we were looking for when it comes to practically moving from a me mentality to a we mentality. I couldn't quite find it. And the Holy Spirit opened my eyes so clearly to see that the answer is in one verse. It's currently on the screen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. It's so profound. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in you and I's hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. I want to read it one more time. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. The reason that's so important is because I would argue today that peace is merely a placeholder for many different words, many different attributes, many different things that are of God, that God desires to see in our life. Essentially, what I believe Paul is saying in these verses is first let peace rule in your own heart because God's ultimate desire is that by peace ruling in your own heart, peace would rule in your community. And so I just wonder... Maybe, just maybe, God is speaking to us today to get us from a me mentality to a we mentality by saying one particular thing. If you don't hear anything else, please don't miss this. That regardless of what we want to see in the we, it has to start in me. 
I love my mother's macaroni and cheese. It's a weird transition, I know. She's here today. She makes the best mac and cheese. Every Thanksgiving, I can't wait to have her mac and cheese. Most family gatherings, she makes her mac and cheese. It's amazing. Cinnamon rolls, mac and cheese. Amazing. But it occurred to me this week, thinking about that statement that Paul writes, thinking about God's desire for us in regards to what rules in our own heart and then rules in our community as well. It occurred to me that if I want to have mac and cheese at a family gathering, I have to ask my mom to make mac and cheese. Because if my mom doesn't bring the mac and cheese, it's probably not going to be there. And in a much deeper spiritual sense, I think some of us have been frustrated on a consistent basis because in our communities, whether they be small like our family or large like our church, in our communities, we want to see something desperately that we ourselves are not willing to bring. It's a humbling reality that at least I've come to in my own life. When I think about my own communities, whether it be my small group, whether it be my family, whether it be my coworkers, my friends, my church, my, my, my any community, in my, the body of Christ as a whole. If there's one thing our world needs right now, it's peace. We prayed about that a few moments ago. And I just wonder if the peace is meant to originate in individual people. And so because of that, I just wonder if maybe the answer to our question, how do we move from a me mentality to a we mentality, is actually a lot more simple than we thought. And the answer is very simple. Whatever we want to see out there, wherever out there is, has to start in here. It's a day one principle when it comes to following Jesus. Some of us in this room, we are learning how to follow Jesus because we recently stepped into a relationship with him, and that's fantastic. Others of us in this room have been walking with Jesus Christ for so long, and now we're, we're to the point in our life and in our story where he's inviting us to come alongside somebody else, leading small groups, leading classes, teaching classes, leading our coworkers to find Jesus. Regardless of where we are on that spectrum, the same principle is true. We were never, please hear me, we were never created to do this life alone. And I believe that God's desire, ultimately, is for this to be a unified effort. Powerful things happen when God's people come together in unity. It's really hard to spell the word community without unity. And so it leads me to believe that unity is the key for moving from me to we. This morning, I want to close with a powerful statement I came across this week. Out of all people to say it, it's Jesus. In John chapter 17, maybe you've read this chapter before, Jesus is praying for people like you and I all those years ago. He's praying for his future disciples, the people that would come to know him in settings just like this. In John chapter 17, verse 23, here's what Jesus Christ says. Here's what he prays to his father. May they, that's us, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. And, this is a big and, and that you love them as much as you love me. That's a crazy statement. That's a radical truth. That's one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever read in the Bible. 
that Jesus first says the key to unity is to actually love one another. He says that many different times in many different ways. But he says, I want the world to know that you sent me because when they look at my people that claim my name, that claim to follow me, what they see is love. What they see is the fruits of the Holy Spirit. What they see is peace, even when the rest of the world doesn't have it. But then he follows that statement up by saying, Father, I know you well enough to know that you look through a lens of love that is identical when you're looking at perfection, that's Jesus, and imperfection, that's people. I don't know another person. I haven't read about another God that loves perfection the same way that he loves imperfection. And the reason, once again, is not because God only chooses to show love. It's because he is love. When we choose to show that same love to one another, things begin to shift. And most importantly, things begin to shift because when we're showing love, we're showing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today to know you. We're grateful today that you care about us and you've created us intricately. You desire intimacy with us. And so here today, Father, I pray for the person who desires to get back to a relationship with you. They've strayed away. And today's the day that something shifts in their life and in their story. I pray for the person today that has been struggling to actually show forgiveness in their life to those in their communities, big or small. I pray that you would help that person come to the conclusion that forgiveness must become a posture and it must be decided in advance prior to circumstances shifting. Father, ultimately here today, I pray for each and every person, myself included, that we would come to an understanding, a deeper understanding and a deeper love for your people. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that you love us even through our selfish behavior and our selfish mindsets daily. I pray that you would help us truly make the decision to love people well in reflection of you, Jesus, to move from me to we. Father, we give you all the honor, praise, and glory that you alone are worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen.